What type of father do you think you would be? Hopefully the one that takes naps all the time. <laughs> I meant in the context of Fitz's father's figures, but I guess I should have added that part at the end if I wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like what? Like a Verity, a Burek, or a Chade. I feel like none of them are good answers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. What about you? Um, definitely a patience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was not an option that you gave me. Um, well, so I be, don't have to be a father figure to my child. So. You'd be very forgetful about things and be like, hey, you have to be good at this. Oh, you're not good. Okay, let's throw this away and do something else. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. If I have to go strictly off of the male figures in Fitz's life... I feel like I'm closer to a Verity, mildly concerned, but trying to let him do his own thing. But in practice, it'd probably be more like Burek, maybe? I don't know. Without the alcoholism. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing Chapter 13, Blue Lake. Fitz finally makes it. Well, this far at least. <laughs> Almost to the edge of the duchies. Yeah, the six duchies. The beginning of this chapter just discusses Blue Lake in general. How it used to be a, a place where grapes grew for a very well-sought-after wine because it was the only place these particular grapes grew. And then fires happened, destroyed all the crops, and to survive, the town had to transition to more of a trade town. Right. And the wine thing was back in Shrewd's day, so really not that long ago. Early in, in King Shrewd's reign, and we right. know he was king as a very either late teens or early 20s, so right. could have been 40 years ago. That's fair, but still in the grand scheme, that's not that long ago. Ago to have transitioned from True. wine to trading. <laughs> to be honest, though, if they did grow uh, a well sought after wine, they would have traders there already. Right, definitely. So, you know, it's not that difficult to transition, especially since they're on the edge of the mountains. Yeah. So, with the river right there, it's pretty much a, uh, a perfect location to survive because you can get <laughs> things from the mountains and ship them up the river and. Get your cash flow. Yeah. So Fitz is still trekking back from murdering the whole guard company. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good little intro into this one here. Yes. And he is just walking through all night into early parts of the morning, making his way back to that oasis that he left from. And they rode away on horse too. He eventually makes it back, you know, loosening up his scabs and moistening his tongue and his face with the whiskey uh, because he doesn't have any water right now. Right. And trying to make it back to that water so he can drink his fill. And when he does, he also starts to make a camp, make a fire, make some stew. Right. Or soup, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's like beans, so I don't think... It's soup, per se. Yeah, he says uh, heating a kettle of water, adding lentils, beans, grain, and dried meat. 
So yeah, I'd assume but, that's kind of like all stewed together. He's adds some more water to it later to make it into like brothy. I guess I just thought that the way you cook beans is with water. That's true. It is. To like soften. Yeah. So I guess I don't know. Maybe it is just soup. <laughs> I was thinking like a rice, a nice like rice bed with beans <laughs> yeah, I don't and, think it looks and like jerky that. on top. <laughs> he does put grain in there. So maybe it turns into more of like a. Jambalaya? Like mushy. I, I, I wouldn't even go so far as rice because I, I feel like this is not a rice kind of locale. locale. I suppose. So I feel it would just be like a mushy, almost oatmeal-y kind <laughs> of thing. <laughs> Obviously, it's not oats, but yeah. some sort of grain in there. I don't know. But he eventually does, you know, take a, take a, a wash in there, dries out his clothes. He's... Sitting by the fire, sipping more brandy, eating, and catalogs himself and his injuries and goes over everything and starts to heal himself up, bandage up, clean up, make sure he doesn't have any of his wounds uh, get infected or anything like that because that would be extremely harmful to his trek through the mountains. Right. And he's just cataloging himself to continue on. Yeah, and for once... He kind of stops cataloging. He yeah. makes note that what does it really matter if they aren't going to kill him and continues on, which I thought is a little bit of growth, maybe. Yes. Yes and no. I feel like him going over methodically over his injuries and, you know, inspecting them and cleaning them up <laughs> is a very good thing. Right. And he kind of disregards that after a while. He's like, eh, it doesn't matter if this is just a bruise or a fracture. I'll just keep going. Like, right. It's It seems very careless of his health, mm. but in a different way than he has been before. So it's, it, I don't know, it could be growth. It's just hard to say. I guess I see it more as growth because in the more recent past, we've kind of seen this cataloging turn into a moping of, oh, I lost. And the shying away from being hard on himself for getting hurt i feel like is kind of good but you're right it's also a little dangerous to not be super aware of all the pains <laughs> when he eats when he finishes uh drying out his clothing gets dressed and everything like that decides he needs to sleep for a bit and moves away from that oasis just in case other caravans come through right and I forgot to mention that on his way to the oasis, he says, I approached it cautiously, but my nose and eyes told me it was blessedly deserted. No mention of the wit. He didn't sense people. Yeah, I I kind of looked at this description, too, and just kind of brushed past it just because of, I assumed he kind of equates his eyes to his wit sense. I don't know. I feel you like, think like so? yeah, it's like, oh, I see this like life form over here and I kind of notice it in my brain. And I don't know. I just in my head, I just kind of put the two together. But, oh, there is no I don't mention of his wit specifically. And he yeah. usually does. So I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah. I wonder if this is a leftover habit of being around the forged people. Yeah, it could be. Definitely. Because forged ones don't work on his his wit. True. However, every single time I feel like he's surprised by forged ones. Well, I think it would still be surprising, <laughs> even if you're like not trying to look. <laughs> right. 
And so for a time, he dreams. He moves away from camp, falls asleep, dreams. Actually, he says he sleeplessly dreams for a little bit and then falls into a, quote, confusing dream in which someone called his name, but I could not find who. A wind was blowing and it was rainy. I hated the sound of the blowing wind. So lonely. Then the door opened and Birik stood in it. He was drunk. I felt both irritated and relieved. I had been waiting for him to come home since yesterday, and now he was here. He was drunk. How dared he be so? A shivering ran over me, an almost awakening, and I knew that these were Molly's thoughts. It was Molly I was skill dreaming. And Fitz says that he doesn't have the will to resist, even though he knows he should, just to prevent any possible danger of uh, harming or befalling Birik and Molly. But he lingers and watches the scene. Right. And I would also like to say that this debunks my theory that it was all his daughter calling him to the situation. Yeah, yeah. It is a little bit Molly. Well, I don't know that Molly is calling him per se, but he is skilling through Molly, not just Nettle. Right. I do want to say that uh, he says someone called his name but could not find who. And we already get in the first paragraph of this point of view, Molly saying something is incredibly lonely. She is obviously still distraught and thinks about Fitz a lot in these things and right. could have called him. We right. don't get it explicitly. And Nettle still could have drawn uh, drawn Fitz in in the previous times, but I, I still hold true to that it's, it's Molly mostly that he latches on to for right. these, for all of the visions. And I suppose if she had a little bit of skill that she, I mean, I wouldn't think that it'd be super, like a, a lot of skill that yeah. she'd have on her or it, in her. We know it's not. Right. So I think that it would make sense if, you, you know, you lose a loved one. She knows Fitz is dead or at least knows that he had been killed. So it would be really hard to grieve that death, especially with the ending that she left Fitz with of not knowing that he's a dad or really having the chance to see if he would come after her. I think that would be really lonely and sad and just not a fun way to have to grieve. So I could see that reaching out a lot more than later in life when she's a little bit more over it. I don't want to yeah. say over it, I mean, but you know, it's only been a few months, you know, yeah. like six months or something like that. And you leave your loved one and assume that they will continue living their lives. And then all of a sudden they're dead. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> so death is really hard <laughs> to process in the best of times. Yes. When situations get weird, it's probably way worse. Mm-hmm. And so Birik and Molly have a conversation, more like Molly admonishing Birik, saying, <laughs> you'd be back yesterday, uh, you're drunk, you shouldn't be in here, that sort of thing. And Birik just saying, I know, I'm sorry, I should have been here yesterday, but Birik's voice was hoarse. There was no spirit in it. But you stayed in town and got drunk, Molly filled in coldly. I, yes, I got drunk. Don't come in here when you're drunk, Molly told him flatly. I know that's how you feel. I was drunk yesterday. I had a bit earlier today, but I'm not drunk. Not now. Now I'm just tired. Very tired. 
He leaned forward and put his head in his hands. You can't even sit up straight. I could hear the anger rising in Molly's voice. You don't even know when you're drunk. Burek looked up at her wearily. Perhaps you're right, he conceded, shocking me. He sighed. I'll go, he told her. I just want to stop here for a second to talk about how Burek probably isn't that drunk. No, he, he's not here. I don't believe he is at all. Maybe a little I mean, I believe he probably was in the cups a bit. But, but he, we know he's he can handle his liquor, to put right. it very mildly. Right. To he has bouts of alcoholism on <laughs> other ends, to right. put it harshly. Right. But <laughs> it's really frustrating to see Molly accusing someone who is clearly upset of being drunk out of their mind. And clearly she has some trauma with yes. men specifically coming home drunk. 100%. So I totally understand being hyper vigilant of changes, especially with a man she probably doesn't know super well. They've only been working together in this weird cohabitation for a few months, less than nine. So it's not that hard to see why she is confused as to what's going on, but like him leaning forward in sorrow and her being like, you can't even sit up straight is very like naggy wife to me, which I don't enjoy reading. And it's really hard, especially because we know how sad Bjork is. She doesn't know that though. And I don't falter for it because of the experience with her dad. Right. Uh, and she does say, he knew how she felt about drunkards. Let a man have a drink or two, that was fine. She had a cup herself now and then. But to come staggering home like this and try to tell her that he was not, you know. Right. That was one thing or another, you know. Just another, like, oh, you're lying about how drunk you are. Like, I can tell you're drunk. And I'm sure Birk had had a drink or two, you know. But I... Right. I do believe him that he was drunk yesterday and just yeah. had a couple to fortify himself before coming home. <laughs> right. And I mean, the staggering home is true and the not being able to sit up straight is true. But those aren't something that only happen when you're drunk. And right. it's not that he can't sit up straight. It's, but maybe Fitz can see that because he's more trained and has literally grown up with Burek. Yeah, he, he whereas, says that too. Yeah, whereas Molly hasn't so she's just going off of what she knows and you know what i did say they'd only known each other for like less than nine months that's not true because she was helping him get better yep at Buckkeep. it's probably close to a year i would guess so yeah so they've known each other a little bit longer but in that capacity it was very brief this is they've been like cohabitating together for yes less than nine months can i see the baby for a moment Burek asked softly he had paused at the door. I saw something in his eyes, something Molly did not know him well enough to recognize, and it cut me to the bone. He grieved. She says no, and he asks, well, she says, you know, the baby's sleeping right there. You can see her. And he has to hold her, and she's like, no, you're drunk and you're cold. If you touch her, she'll wake up. Why do you, why do you want to do that? Something in Birik's face crumpled. His voice was hoarse as he said, Because Fitz is dead, and she's all I have left of him or his father. And sometimes, 
He lifted a wind-roughened hand to rub his face. Sometimes it seems as if it's all my fault. His voice went very soft on those words. I should never have let them take him from me. When he was a boy, when they first wanted to move him up to the keep, I, if I'd put him on a horse behind me and gone to chivalry, maybe they'd both still be alive. I thought of that. I nearly did it. He didn't want me to leave, you know, and I made him. I nearly took him back to chivalry instead. But I didn't. I let them have him, and they used him. I felt the trembling that ran suddenly through Molly. Tears stung suddenly at her own eyes. She defended herself with anger. Damn you, he's been dead for months. Don't try to get around me with drunkard's tears. I know, Beric said. I know. He's dead. He took a sudden deep breath and straightened himself in that old familiar way. I saw him fold up his pains and weakness and hide them deep inside himself. I wanted to reach out and put a steadying hand on his shoulder, but that was truly me and not Molly. He started for the door and then paused. Oh, I have something. He fumbled inside his shirt. This was his. I took it from his body after he died. You should keep it for her, so she has something of her father's. He had this from King Shrewd. And he has Fitz's pin that Shrewd gave him. And it comes together for Fitz here, and he realizes that Beric had gone to the cabin to see if Fitz had come back, to see any update right. on Fitz. And he had found the rotting corpse of a forged one with Fitz's shirt and that pin in it. Right. And assumed because Fitz notes that that forged one was of a similar age and of buck descent as well. So had the dark hair. So had the dark hair that Beric must have thought that was Fitz and now truly believes Fitz has died. Right. It's interesting that we don't see any reaction from Fitz at first while Beric is talking about this grieving process, there is no confusion or wonder. It's just sort of a retelling of here's what's happening. And then, oh my gosh, this is why. And it's really sad. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of reasons. But I think what's the saddest in my opinion is that Burek is clearly grieving and this is very fresh for him because he knows Fitz didn't actually die. Right. And he has to grieve that alone because he can't let Molly know that Fitz was alive and that he let him die again. Right. And that'll just ruin it, everything. And she needs him. And so there's this really big loneliness in this pain. And Molly, because... She is a person who defends with anger as a way to cope or a way to survive the environment she grew up in, lashes out instead of comforts. And that just doesn't help the situation. And I don't blame Molly for lashing out no. because she doesn't know the situation and she's also grieving. It just is so sad. And I feel so bad because I just wish that Fitz would have told Burek later, even after what goes on, that he is alive. And I know why he doesn't, like, in his own mind. But 
just seeing this grieving process. Ugh, yeah. So sad. And this book in particular, we've touched on it before, and I think I've mentioned it before, really talks about loneliness in a, an in-depth and nuanced way in multiple different ways. Right. You know, Fitz and Night Eyes both experience loneliness in their separate ways and find comfort with one another. Beric has it here. Molly has it. It's it's everywhere. Ketrakin feels it throughout the whole series. Right. Yeah, it, it's rough, but it's a very interesting look at the different loneliness and um, feelings that people can have from different events. Right. That Robin Hobb goes through. Yeah, loneliness can take many different forms. I also do want to gripe a little bit about the fact that Birk assumes that Fitz is dead. I know that it's wearing Fitz's shirt and it has the pin, but oh, I wish he wouldn't think that it was Fitz because Fitz can survive. <laughs> I just, I, I guess what context does he have that it was a forged that's, one? That's but, your straight uh, you know, fan theory. Yes. You know, that's like your reader. He mind. should know. <laughs> I know. So he should. <laughs> and so hearing that Beric now believes that Fitz is truly dead, Fitz tries to reach him with the skill, but of course chivalry has sealed him all those years ago. Can't reach out, can't contact him, saying that he's still alive at all. And eventually he just wakes up. Right. I do quick want to ask why do you think Beric is blaming himself for chivalry's death still? I, I think it's because he was the right-hand man. He was the guy there that was going to protect chivalry at all costs. Mm -hmm. And since he got sent away and didn't fight that, chivalry died. And, and we, we've talked about how deeply driven guilt is into Beric's psyche and his character True. in general. He pretty much thrives off of his guilt and his you know self-doubt and how he's not... He hasn't made any of the right choices in his life. Right. And that's why he wanted to make Fitz come out all right and become the man he was meant to be because Birk was not able to do that. Yeah. And I feel like that just losing anybody, Birk will still find a way to blame himself. That's fair. And it is a pretty normal reaction to have. Yeah. If I was there, this wouldn't have happened, you know? Right. I could have done something. Something would have changed. It's very normal. So Burek grieves and Fitz is awake and realizes that he is very strongly skilling out because he's trying so hard to reach Burek. So he immediately shuts himself off because he doesn't want to risk their safety now that he's gone back to his senses of, oh yeah, there are people looking for me. And he thinks about how lonely and scary it is when none of your friends believe that you are alive. Because if Burek thinks he's dead, that means Jade probably thinks he's dead. If they're still in contact with Fitz is assuming they are. Yeah. And it's just something Fitz has never truly had to think about before now because 
even as he's going through and failing doing things on his own, he still has Chade and Burek to fall back on in some way. Yeah, that's the rest of his safety net cut away. Yeah. And now he has nobody. <laughs> if he dies now, nobody will know. Yep. He's on his own. Yeah. What he's always wanted. Yes. <laughs> so he drinks the rest of the brandy, falls back asleep, and dreams of wolves running. I know you live. I shall come to you if you need me. You need but ask. The reaching was tentative but true. I clung to the thought like a friendly hand as sleep claimed me. So he got a little skill or a little wet sending from Night Eyes. Right. Still, the connection is there. So Night Eyes is a little bit more aware of him than he has been in the past. Just because of the, I think the sending maybe last chapter as well was like the first time they had contact in a long time. Right. Can't remember if that was the last chapter or two chapters ago. But mm -hmm. since then, he's they've kept a little bit more uh, of an eye on each other, I guess. It was last chapter. Last chapter, okay. And... To be fair, Night Eyes has always had more of an eye on Fitz than Fitz has had on Night Eyes. So I'm not super surprised that Night Eyes could feel this thought and would recognize his friend in emotional pain, especially knowing Fitz. I'm sure it is a pretty regular feeling <laughs> Night Eyes is used to. True. I, I was more uh, talking about the multiple weeks after they had split where right. Fitz wasn't getting anything from Night Eyes. Right. He would just see wolves running and not feel anything back. Right. So since that first contact, now Night Eyes is like aware again and mm -hmm. being like, oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that he wasn't aware. I think he was taking time for himself. Yeah, but, no. I, you know, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Different way to say it, yeah. And so the following days, Fitz walks towards Blue Lake Nothing too eventful happens. Some messengers ride past him and he realizes that sooner or later someone was going to five, find those unburied guards and the tale of how, you know, the witted bastard had been captured right in the midst of this caravan would be too juicy of gossip for Crease or even Starling to withhold. So there are, there are going to be stories of his coming, of his being around in that area, preceding him. Right. And eventually he makes it to Blue Lake. He sees the wisp of smoke in the distance and walks through. He realizes that it has taken him longer than he thought it would to get this far. Mostly because the last time he came through... He was with the marrying caravan for the wedding uh, between Verity and Ketrican. And even though that took a long time, it is way longer to walk by yourself through this right. area. Right. So it has taken up more time than he thought, and he is getting a little desperate. Um, he notes that it would be the snow would be deep before I reached the mountains, and I did not know what conditions I would face as I traveled up into the heights of it to find Verity in the lands beyond. I did not truly know if he still lived. He had spent much strength helping me win free of Regal, yet come to me, come to me, seemed to echo with the beating of my heart. I caught myself keeping step with that rhythm. I would find Verity or his bones, but I knew I would not truly belong to myself again until I had done so. 
I think this is so interesting because obviously Fitz is in a bad mood. His friends think he's dead. And so now he's worrying the worst about Verity because they can't talk with the, you know, skill as they usually do. But it really made me wonder what happens if Verity were to have left the area that he was before? Would Fitz somehow know which direction to go? Is it like an internal compass? Yeah, I feel like it would be something like that. Come to me and he just has to find Verity no matter where he is. Mm-hmm. And I, it makes sense to me that if Verity had died, he would still have to go to Verity. Yeah. I just was wondering, like, what if Verity, like, took a skill portal to Chalcid or something? <laughs> Does he then turn, like, suddenly be like, nope, I actually have to go the other direction? <laughs> I don't think it would be immediate like that. I think he would still go through the mountains and find no sense. And maybe at that point he'd be like, huh, where is Verity? And then try to go directions and mm. I don't know. But you don't think it's the skill itself that's like an internal compass? No, not really. I think it'd be more subtle than that and not like instantly recognizable that, oh, he teleported this way. Right. Interesting. He enters Blue Lake and is describing this a little bit. It's a trader town here and he talks about the gold that he has now is, well, the money. 15 silvers, 12 coppers. It's the sum total of his funds plus what Bolt had been carrying. Remember, he had rummaged through Bolt's belongings, but not the rest of the guards. Right. So he doesn't have a ton of cash, but he has, you know, enough to buy supplies. He knows that that amount is not enough to book passage, really. But he can buy provisions and heavier clothes, so he does so. He goes to the trading place. and Well, not just any trading place. He looks for the sketchiest-looking trading place in the area. Yeah, and so he goes to the place where the trade seemed the liveliest. With the sketchiest part, as Emma said, it's avoiding the richer part of town where he would have to spend more for his things and wouldn't need that high price of stuff. I was also thinking that it would be easier to blend in with the riffraff (laughs) than it would be to be around all these rich people. Yeah. So he buys some, he he buys a basket that he can carry his bundles in. He buys, you know, some woolen clothes and a quilted jacket and everything that he might need to survive in the winter. At a tiny herb stall, he was able to find elf bark and so secured a small store of that for him. And in a nearby market, he bought strips of dried smoked fish, dried apples, and flat cakes of very hard bread that the vendor assured him would keep well no matter how far Fitz might travel. He tried then to book passage on a barge across Blue Lake. And he, well, he actually went trying to work his way across. But... Everyone there, and specifically a uh, a boy, told thirteen year old, him, a thirteen year old, yeah, a boy would told him that no one in uh, no one is hiring. Everyone knows the big barges don't work this like this time of year unless there's gold in it, and there ain't this year. Mountain witch shut down all the trade to the mountains. Nothing to haul means no money worth taking the risk, and that's it, plain and simple. But even if the trade was open, you'd not find much going back and forth in winter. Summers is when the big barges can cross them from this side to that. 
Winds can be iffy even then, but a good crew can work a barge, sail, and oar there and back again. But this time of year, it's a waste of time. So he learns that there's lots of, you know, winter storms that can blow past and destroy even a good cruise ship, and it's not worth taking any cargo across during the winter. Right. Also, he learns that the only other way to get past is by paying gold. And he doesn't look like the type of person who would have gold, which is true about him at this moment. And he listened to other people as well and learned the same things, had it confirmed for him that the Mountain Witch had closed trade, meaning Ketrakin, and that nobody was sailing this time of year. So at the moment... He's kind of stuck. Right. Because he was advised to, you know, avail himself of five gold pieces if he wanted to get across then. And remember, his earring was worth, what, three, I think, offered initially. And that was enough for a very nice horse plus food for his journey. So he's going to need a lot more money if he wants to cross by normal and legal means. Exactly. I also want to point out that the rumor about the Mountain Witch is a little crazy at this point. So the Mountain Witch had closed the passes and innocent travel travelers were being attacked and robbed by mountain brigands. So for their own good, travelers and traders were being turned back at the border. War was looming. This is really interesting to me because... This is just an escalation of what we've already heard. And it's changed because I believe at the last town Fitz was in before making the journey across to Blue Lake, Regal was the one who cut off trade, but it was because the Mountain Witch was there and they were being unfriendly. Am uh, I wrong? No, yeah. It, the rumor was always that Ketrakin is the one that cut off trade. We know personally that it was okay. Regal who did it, but the, the rumor was always that Ketrakin is the one who did it. Um, just to, you know, because she doesn't recognize Regal as the true king or whatever reason that he gave. Right. But we hadn't heard anything about the brigands, you know, attacking travelers or anything like that until here. That was the new stuff added. Yeah. And I was wondering, do you think that there are pharaoh guards really attacking people and stealing their money dressed like mountain people? Or do you think this is like a skill message that has been sent out by Will that the people just feel like this is true? No, I think it's just a rumor that they spread around and they don't need Mm -hmm. proof of it because they already have, you know, the king's word that the mountain witch is doing this stuff. And it's just a short leap there because he's been working for two, three years to sow all of this disinformation and propaganda against Ketrakin and the previous Farseer family. So right. I feel like it, even if it is like has a scrap of truth to it, it's probably the soldiers that got sent across the lake and nev- never came back. And they're like, oh, they were actually attacked by mountain brigands and not lost on the lake or whatever. You know, I, mm, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily people posing as brigands because remember they were turned back from the border, quote unquote. Right. In that merchant caravan. So I I guess I'm just having a hard time, especially this close to the mountain. People just believing that that's true without any proof, because 
they would have had to have been doing trade with the mountain people for a really long time. And it seems odd to just turn on the people that you've been friendly with this long. Maybe there has never been friendliness. Maybe it is a little bit like racist in some way on either, either or both. At least. Yeah, yeah. Like where, I don't know, maybe it hasn't, the relations have always been bad, but it just feels odd to me that a group so close to the border who would have known people that were from the mountains because of all the trading they do are just like, yeah, I don't need to see any proof. I know those mountain people are scum, you know? Well, we do know <laughs> 20 years ago, chivalry signed a peace treaty with mm. the mountain kingdom or at least some sort of, you know, written document. Right. And I okay. feel like that was like the first time in a while that they had done that. Okay, so I think okay. it's just within the past 20 years and three or four of that Regal has been working against it. Right. Okay. Good point. That's a good recall. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like there's definitely enough time and propaganda can seep yeah. into people's minds pretty easily. That's fair. And flip opinions, especially if you have a high opinion of the person who is giving them out, who is True. their supposed king, you know? True. So Fitz finds a cheap inn after buying his supplies, pays for a common room in the loft, you know, washes up, got a hot bath, and sits in the common room listening to gossip and eating some of his soup or some of his meals. Right. And he's listening to all of these rumors, this gossip, getting the feel of the town. And he says the second night he was in the inn, he heard a rumor that 12 king's guards had been found slaughtered by brigands half a day's ride past Jernigan's Spring. By the next night, someone had made the connection and tales were told of how the bodies had been savaged and fed upon by a beast. So this is double the amount of guards that actually were there. Yep. There were only six guards. Now there's 12 dead guards. Um, but also, you skipped over the first night's best part of gossip that <laughs> Jake Ruddy Nose got his Ruddy Nose bitten off by Crook Crookarm the Scribe. Crookarm is such a good name. A scribe biting off someone else's nose. It's pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> you just kind of breezed right by that. So, I wonder if they ever pop up again. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, definitely not because Crookarm is such a like wild name. What if Crookarm was the guy with the barrel in the uh, the first book that yelled at Fitz or cornered I, Fitz? He's not smart enough to know how to write. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. I think a lot of people in Buck are educated, but they're not. Oh, that's right. So there. Maybe he wasn't smart enough to write. <laughs> no. But like what kind of kid do you want your child to grow into? With the name Crook Arm. <laughs> like a thief, question mark? Pretty sure it's nicknames. Maybe. <laughs> you never know in this book. <laughs> true, true. And so the teller of the story about the 12 dead guards being savaged upon by a beast were obviously linked to the witted bastard. While Fitz is like sitting there in the midst of them hearing the story and like, I don't have red eyes. I'm probably not going to get found out. It's probably just scavengers, you know, chewing on the corpses after I left because right. they were hungry for a meal. So, oh, whatever. <laughs> They're not going to find me. <laughs> right. I don't have fangs either. <laughs> but he does 
realize that even if these people won't recognize him, there is potential that better descriptions will be shared. True. And he has very specific scars, which he had never thought about before. And so now he knows how easy it would be to verify it's him and has a sudden pang of recognition at the how hard yeah. yeah sympathy how hard it was for Chade to work through suddenly gaining pox scars yeah definitely so he's reflecting on that a little bit on his appearance as well and he is again down on himself and says in a way I reflected I was as much Regal's creation now as Chade's because his scars and his broken face and everything no longer startled him when he saw it in the mirror. It was a part of himself now. He accepted, not exactly accepted who he was, but <laughs> accepted the changes to his physical appearance. Right. But of course, he has to relate that back to his biggest nemesis in his eyes. Right. And he does make the comment, Chade had only taught me how to kill. Regal had made me a true assassin. Um... I feel a little lame because I have no idea what he's talking about. He he's wrong about himself in this in this line. But what I believe he's talking about is Fitz doesn't care if he kills the guards who beat him or Regal at this point. He's always had Mm. doubts. He's always not liked killing under shade. He knew how to do it. He learned how to do it. He could be good at it. But the pain that Regal put him through put his mind into a, a place where he's like, I can kill. OK, OK. See, every time I read that line, I'm like, Fitz, you literally haven't successfully killed the right target <laughs> yet. Like, <laughs> that's not true. He has in the past for shrewd. But like yeah. since Regal's dungeons, <laughs> which is a little harsh, but true. I don't know. So I guess that makes a lot more sense. I'm sitting yeah. here like. Didn't you accidentally <laughs> kill the wrong person and then also not correctly poison everybody? At, like <laughs> It worked out, though, for him. So. A true assassin. <laughs> so he says the third evening in the inn, he heard gossip that made Fitz cold. That the king himself was in blue cloak along with the head skill wizard. So he learns that Regal and Will are probably in Blue Lake. And they rode in to deal with what the Mountain Witch had done to block the passes and trade and stuff like that. And someone said that the king himself had come to track down the pocked man and the witted bastard, for it's well known they work hand in glove with the Mountain Witch. And so he has learned that Regal is in town and immediately kind of sets out to find where he's staying and finish his job once and for all. Right. It's really interesting that Fitz has not learned any lessons. Uh, I guess that's true to Fitz's character, but it's a little frustrating that the second he finds out Regal is in town, he's like, oh, better go try to kill him. Second chance. Worked so well the first like 800 times I've tried. Let me (laughs) let me see if this time it works a little bit better. So that's a little frustrating, Mm -hmm. Um, but he does go looking. He wants to know where 
Regal is staying and he finds out that it is at one of the better hotels well, the in best in. Yeah. Yeah. And the owner is both excited and worried to have been picked because there was no mention of being paid yes. to have his whole hotel in emptied for Regal and his guards. But he does have a big laundry list of things that the king himself would like while he stays there. Huge cost. And we know, and all of us know that have read this before, all of you guys listening, that this is not Regal. Right. This is an imposter. And Fitz does not know that yet. He is taking his time to plan this time. He mentions in his brain that, uh, or thinks to himself, that he didn't really have much of a plan going into Tradeford. This time he sets about, you know, gaining information from people leaving the, that inn that Regal is staying at. That Regal was not receiving today. No, he felt poorly after his hasty trip. He was uh, resting, you know, and he's figuring out the best plan of attack. He's looking at locks and latches on other like inns in the city so he knows that he can get past the windows and pick the locks and things like that he's going on the roof to you know plan his way in and find his way to the room and plant a dagger into regal or whatever so he's trying to plan this whole thing out he's trying to have a little more care he mentions that a few weeks ago he could just jump in because he didn't care if he lived or died but now he's a father and he has molly and his daughter to think about i was no longer willing to trade my life for regals this time i needed a plan yeah definitely so like luke said he goes to the rooftop and is excited because this is the tallest roof in the town there is no way anybody would see him on the roof unless they were specifically looking for him, which is not out of the realm of possibility. But either way, he th feels pretty safe and still waits for nightfall to do anything. Yep. He says he had secured some small tools and a length of light line that would provide his exit. You'd enter and leave without a trace. And he had his poisons with me. So he's ready to go. He, he's getting ready to work his way down the roof. He gets close and he says, at the crucial moment, I swung my legs a few times for impetus and braced myself to let go. Trap, trap. I froze where I was. My legs curled under the eave of the roof while I clung to the two awls sunk between the shakes. I did not even breathe. It was not night eyes. No, small ferret. Trap, trap. Go away. Trap, trap. It's a trap? Trap, trap for Fitzwolf. Old blood knows. Big ferret said. Go with. Go with. Warn Fitzwolf. Rolf bear knew your smell. Trap, trap. Go away. I almost cried out when a small warm body suddenly struck my leg and ran up my clothes. In a moment, a ferret poked its whiskery face into mine. Trap, trap, he insisted. Go away. Go away. So Fitz kind of edges back from the precipice of leaping forward and communicates a little bit more with this ferret and knows that someone had bonded 
this animal. I want it, you know, want to be his first choice. Right. But uh, someone had. And this animal is also very angry. Yes. Furious. And he says, big ferret hurt to death. Tells small ferret, go with, go with. Take the smell. Warn Fitzwolf. Trap, trap. There was so much I wanted to ask. Somehow Black Rolf had interceded for me with the old blood. And he was... Fitz, Fitz kind of re, uh, reflects that ever since he left Tradeford, he was fearing that every witted one he encountered would be working against him because he had heard Regal had hired Old Blood right. to track and hunt other Old Blood. And so he had avoided everything, but this ferret had hid in Regal's or the people here's right. uh, Will's clothes and their boxes and stuff come with and waited for Fitz to warn him that it was a trap to go away. Right. And he does mention that it's Fitz's scent, a scent that he is looking for yep. to warn. And I think that's so interesting because clearly Fitz has not met this ferret before. So maybe there's a wit skill, part of the wit that lets you share scents with other animals. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, maybe just like a, a feeling of what this is kind of thing. And you pass that information along through the wit. Right. And I guess, I mean, animals don't have a way to communicate the same way humans do. So if they communicated with smells, that would actually make kind of a lot of sense. <laughs> sense. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just... I thought that was really interesting that specifically he found Fitz because he was looking out for the smell. Fitz asks if that ferret, you know, wants to come with him to leave. And what he doesn't know is that big ferret as this as this ferret has deemed him impressed small ferrets mind with this singular task right. to kill Regal. And he says, no. Go with, go with, hide in the one-eyes things, Will's things. Warren Fitzwolf, go with, go with, find old blood hater, Regal. Hide, hide, wait, wait, old blood hater sleep, small ferret kill. It was a dying wish of his previous Bond partner to kill Regal. And it must have taken a while for this to happen. To kill Regal? I thought the dying wish was to tell Fitz this is a trap. Well, he was a small animal with a small mind, but an image of Regal, old blood hater, was fixed in that simple mind. I wondered how long it had taken Big Fair to implant this notion firmly enough for him to carry it for weeks. Then I knew a dying wish. So, like, the last message, yeah, warn him it's a trap, but, like, you kill mm -hmm. Regal. Okay, I did not even catch that. I was like... No, he the, he's in his mind because he's mad that he killed his friend. But no, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Like, <laughs> kill him. <laughs> and we know that this this small ferret succeeds in the end. Right. He actually Spoiler. does. Yeah. <laughs> he actually does. And Fitz is like, how can you kill, you know, Regal? And all of a sudden this, the ferret is at his throat, kind of like nibbling at his jugular vein. Right. <laughs> Yeah, Fitz definitely underestimates the ferret because it is small, but that ferret doesn't have any problem showing him who is the real boss here. Yes. And so Fitz takes his advice 
the small ferret's advice after warming him up a little bit, feeding him some jerky, and goes away. Someone had given much to send me this courier. I did not wish to face Will in any case. Much as I wanted to kill him, I knew now I was not his equal in the skill. Nor did I wish to spoil Small Ferret's chance. There is honor among assassins of a kind. It warmed my heart to know I was not Regal's only enemy. Soundless as the dark, I made my way over the inn roof and then down to the street by the stable. And he returns to his inn, sits in the common room, has some soup with two men at the table as well. Right, where he pays another copper for another night, which means he's up to three coppers for a night. <laughs> but one copper is worth a teapot? I don't yeah. know. A teapot and like four other things? I, look, the money here, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> when a hand fell on my shoulder, I did not startle so much as flinch. I had known there was someone behind me. I had not expected him to touch me. He turns around and it's Starling. Not a he. Not a he. Starling. Yes. Which makes me feel like she has a really strong grip for Fitz to like assume. <laughs> I mean, she's a harp player, right? Right. Yeah. So she would have to. And also calluses from yeah. the harp. So he's like, oh, this is totally a dude. Turns around. <laughs> it's Starling. <laughs> also, you know, the assumption that you're in a seedy inn in a, right. <laughs> a town. like. <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be a guy to come pickpocket you in this society. Right. I looked up at the starling's smiling face and my guts turned over inside me. Tom, she greeted me jovially and claimed a seat at the table beside me. And she seemed entirely too pleased with herself uh, to suit Fitz. I said nothing but only looked at her. She made a small gesture toward my bowl. Please go on eating. I didn't mean to disturb your meal. You look, uh, you look as if you could use it. Short rations lately? A bit, I said softly. Also, we should mention that last time Fitz saw Starling, she was in a just a plain-ish cloak. She had holes in her ears for earrings, but wasn't wearing any and was just kind of very plainly dressed. And now she has several silver earrings in her ears. Her cloak is new and nice. She clearly has come into money lately. <laughs> yes, yes. She's cleaned up. And Fitz finally asks what she wants. They have a little conversation of, you know, I want a song, blah, blah, blah. The whole conversation of like, I know who you are. And Fitz is like, no, you don't. I'm not that person. <laughs> right. She asks if he has a room so they can talk more about this song that she wants to make. And he points out that, no, there are no rooms here. <laughs> and so she says, well, I have a room so you can come with me. And also... There was a fine shoulder of pork roasting on the hearth fire when I left. It would likely be cooked by the time we got there. Which, of course, makes Fitz a little bit more lenient towards going yes. anyway. <laughs> and my favorite, I think this part makes me kind of fall in love with Starling a little bit. Uh, he says, I couldn't afford it, I told her bluntly. I could, she offered blandly. Get your things, I'll share my room as well. <laughs> I just love her. She... And if I decline, I asked quietly. Again, she made the tiny shrugging motion. It's your choice. She returned my gaze levelly. I could not decide if there was a threat in her small smile or not. Do you think she is threatening here? 
No, I think she knows Fitz is going to follow her. Yeah. Well, Starling in this, and I have a couple things highlighted of what Fitz notices about her. She is very, very confident in her own knowledge and abilities to the point where if she... Like in a later point in this chapter where Fitz knows something before her, she is mad about it. Right. Because like, no, I have the best knowledge. Right. Like To an annoying point of like, <laughs> I'm the best person and I know everything around here. Right. It's a touch of arrogance, I suppose. 100%. But she kind of deserves it. She oh, yeah. was she, right. She is very uh, witty. She has smart street smarts as well and can put right. things together. No problem. Yeah. I... I forget how much I like Starling. I think she doesn't get a great start, per se. She's fine, but she's kind of boring, I think, when you first meet her, in my opinion. She's a little a li- bit. almost forgettable. Not quite. But because she like is like, hey, you're Fitz, right? But I think up until that point, she's a little bit just like, oh, she's just a musician. Yeah. And now she has this personality and it's coming out more. And I, I don't know. I just really like this chapter's version of Starling. Yeah, I was going to say I'm, I'm very up and down on Starling as the story goes on. Because she's very confrontational about who the fool is later on on their right. journey. and She's a morally gray person. Everyone here. Yes. Is. <laughs> but I Except think... for Ketrikin and Patience, I would say. <laughs> um <laughs> Everyone else is very morally gray. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I, I don't know, but I really like. Maybe chivalry from I, what we hear. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I guess I just like how strong she is in a way that's so different from patience and Ketrickin's strength. We have patience who is strong in that she is being herself, even though it's not popular, and then takes care of Buck, even when it's hard. And then we have Ketrickin who is a literal warrior who can forge steel, which you have to be a little strong to do. Silver. And just she does silver, silver, sorry. Um, but either way, yeah. <laughs> I think you'd need muscles. Uh, and just goes after her husband while pregnant alone and stays alone in a foreign country. She has so much strength. And then we have Starling, who is witty and confident and knows her stuff and isn't afraid to tell people what she knows and be herself. I just think it has gone through so much trauma and still is out there adventuring. Yes. You know, living her life. Yeah. And I just think it's so cool that we have these three strong women and they're all so different. Yeah. I should also say Molly is also a strong woman. (laughs) I just feel like we don't see her as much in the strong woman role because Fitz places her into a box of the person that he is. Yeah. He loves her. And so she isn't viewed as much as in a strong light, but you can tell just from what she had to go through when she was like a young child with her drunk father and taking care of a shop by herself and then deciding to be a single mother rather than stay and get rejected by the father. I, I don't know. She also has a lot of strength and it's really cool. It's nice to see women written about with so much strength, I guess. Diverse cast as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as they 
uh, as Fitz gets packed up and gets ready to leave and they're walking out, Starling <laughs> comments, nice cloak, she observed Riley. Haven't I seen it somewhere before? Perhaps you have, I said quietly. Would you like to see the knife that goes with it? Because he's wearing Bolt's cloak. Mm-hmm. She only smiled more broadly and made a small warding gesture with her hands. She turned and walked away, not looking back to see if I followed. Again, there was that curious mixture of trusting me and challenging me. I walked behind her. And that's one of the things I had highlighted, that last sentence of she's daring him to do something because she is so arrogantly confident about what she knows about Fitz is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And for the most part, she is correct. Yeah. But that that attitude and that characteristic is so gratingly annoying when it comes to the fool. Yeah. It when she is wrong about something, she is stubborn and says, No, I'm not. <laughs> she is really similar to the fool though. She is. She is. The fool is also a little arrogant about what he knows. To be oh, fair, 100%. he is clairvoyant. Yeah, he's so... impression. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of... I guess when you can literally tell the future, it'd be a little hard <laughs> not to be arrogant. But I think it's really interesting how similar the two are and yet how different they are at the same time. Different ends of the morally gray spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) So she leads him away from the waterfront, goes toward that rich side of town, not far from where King Regal is staying either. And well, King in quotes, King Regal. He says, it was not so far from the inn where King Regal was not truly staying at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so... She walks in, she sweeps off her cloak and a bow to the serving people there and, you know, orders some trays of pork and wine and everything like that and offers Fitz a seat, saying, you have nothing to fear from me, I assure you. On the contrary, it is I who place myself at risk in seeking you out. I do want to say quickly that I thought it was interesting that Fitz now knows Regal isn't there because though he knows it's a trap, that doesn't mean that Regal isn't there, right? But he is sussed out that probably Regal's not there if Re- if Will is setting a trap for him. Right, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Fitz is smarter than we think sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> he was raised by Chade. That's true. That is true. But he does. I, I shouldn't even say raised. He was specifically trained by Chade to yes. be smart. <laughs> to pick things out, I suppose. Yes, to pick patterns Gather out. clues. Yes. <laughs> and so the serving boy brought two platters of the roast pork, some fresh bread and butter, and apple wine to go with it. He exchanged some small chatter with Starling, and... Uh, served it on their table at Fitz notes with a charm and grace that bespoke his interest in Starling. <laughs> Another and patron called him away and Starling attacked her plate with appetite. The food and sounds good. So does Fitz. Yes. And he immediately is not worried anymore about what's going to happen. He is consumed with how good this food tastes he does wait a moment before attacking his after she starts eating right but then he gets lost in the sauce quite literally i mean listen to this description (laughs) i had not had fresh meat in some days and the hot crackling fat on the pork almost made me dizzy with its savor the bread was fragrant the butter sweet i had not tasted food this good since buckkeep for a second my appetite was all i considered 
Then the taste of apple wine put me suddenly in mind of Rurisk, and how he had died of poisoned wine. I set my goblet carefully back on the table and recalled my caution. I mean... And that pork sounds good. Look, I... It's like one line of description, and I'm like, I could have some pork right now. <laughs> yes, I am down for some pork... Pork and bread. That's Just like it. meat, meat and bread. That's that brings them back to the keep right The there. bread is more for me. I'm more like, ooh, <laughs> fresh hot bread. That sounds so good. But sometimes meat is just really good. Yeah. yeah. And so he brings it back around to conversation. And Starling admits that she was seeking him out, but only with her own two eyes and not by word of mouth. So it was Should. harder. What was that? It was harder. Yeah, so it was harder. And so uh, he should be appreciative of not spreading his description about or anything like that. Right. Also, she doubles down that the only reason she's after him is for a song. It's not for the prize money. It's because she wants to make a song. She also says, like I mentioned the last chapter... I can't tell you what a thrill that was for me when I heard they'd found those six guardsmen dead. I had thought I was wrong about you, you see. I truly believe they had dragged off poor old Tom the shepherd as a scapegoat. Chivalry's son, I told myself, would never go as quietly as all that. And so I let you go and I didn't follow. But when I heard the news, it put a shiver up my spine as stood every hair in my body on end. It was him, I chided myself. The bastard was there and I watched him taken away and never stirred a finger. You can't imagine how I cursed myself for doubting my instincts. But then I decided, well, if you survived, you'd still come here. You're on your way to the mountains, aren't you? Which Fitz has to glare at her. She doesn't seem perturbed at all by it. And finally asks, why do you think I'm going to the mountains? And she offers up a couple different things uh, to rally to Ketrickin's aid or, you know, whatever. Whatever the reason, there's probably a song in it I just kind of want to... Tag along. I want to document all this. Right. He does mention that a year ago, her charm and smile might have won Fitz over. And a year ago, he would have wanted to believe this engaging woman. I'd have wanted her to be my friend, he says. Now she only made me tired. She was an encumbrance, a connection to a void. I didn't answer her question. I only said, it's a foolish time to even think of going to the mountains. The winds are against the trip. There's no barge runs until spring. And she nods her agreement. And this is where we learn the information that the King's guards pressed two barges and their crews a week ago and forced them to attempt the trip. Body from at least one barge washed back to store, men and shore, men and horses. No one knows if the other soldiers made it across or not. But she smiled with satisfaction and drew closer to me as she dropped her voice. I do know of one group who are still bound for the mountains. And we learn it's smugglers. Yes. And that is uh, the information she brings to Fitz to entice him to go with her. Right. That is what she wanted to find out. That's what she wants to create that link with and be like, eh, you can go across the lake with the smugglers, but only I know how to find them. So you have to go with me. And... She says here, the next part, is that's not the real reason I sought you out. Fitz, you must have heard that King Regal has come to Blue Lake. But it's all a lie, a trap to lure you in. You must not go there. I knew that, I told her calmly. 
How, she demanded. She spoke quietly, but I could see how annoyed she was that I had known before she had told me. And that's the other part I had highlighted with her <laughs> supreme confidence and arrogance and her right. knowledge that she can't be, you know, she she's astounded that someone else found out before she she could tell, you know. To be fair, Fitz fell for it. So oh, he did. He did. But he did know before <laughs> he did know before her, but only because a ferret told her. Which he plays off as perhaps a little birdie told me, you know how we witted talk to all animals. And she gets all excited, like, really? And he just raises an eyebrow at her. <laughs> but he did get told by an animal and he can talk to all animals. So I don't know why he's like, I can't believe she well, believed he can't talk to all animals. Well, if they want to talk to him or have the capacity to talk. Exactly. But like, essentially, he can talk to every animal. <laughs> I don't know. So I thought that was like a little little bit rough of Fitz to be like, <laughs> I'm so much smarter in a situation that's like a technicality. <laughs> but also, I think it's sweet that she was like, hey, this kid's going to go after Regal. I better stop him. And looking back, how did Fitz not know this was a trap? Did you? Well, first of all, do you think she did it? Purely out of altruistic reasons, just like to be nice and like save no, this but kid, I, like you mentioned. No, I think that that's part of it, though. I don't think she's a horrible person. And as soon as she knew there was a trap for Fitz, I think she would be on extra high alert to be like, I better save him so that he doesn't get killed. And that means that probably he would owe his life to her and she yeah. could follow for a song. I think that's more more so. The but, angle, I think. But I don't think that means that she would let him die either way. Right. I mean, maybe True. if he was a nobody, I guess. She so, wants her song. Yeah. So I suppose maybe it's not super nice. She but. wants her legacy, which is uh, which is one thing that we do kind of I kind of want to talk about and bring up right here. She is infertile due to the trauma that she went through. Right. With uh, the red ship raid on her town. Mm -hmm. And she is obsessed with leaving a legacy, a song to be remembered. She cannot have kids as far as, you know, first time readers know at this point. We know she is. She does get pregnant later um, to I forget the Lord's name. Oh, man. Um, I don't remember either, but he's like a minor noble in Bach, yeah, right? Yeah. So that it, her character really is is fleshed out with like the obsession with hey i i really want this song i will do anything to create a legacy and create like a big song to leave behind and yes i can i can see that yeah all minstrels want to leave that big song but we've met harper josh right <laughs> and he is very content teaching you know the traditional historic songs to mm -hmm. his daughter and the apprentices or whatever and going from town to town singing for their meals and then recording history, local history. Not right. all minstrels are like Starling. Starling right. is very unique. She is very, very hopeful to leave a lasting legacy on the world. So she will be remembered. Right. Well, I think what happened to her is really hard to deal with in a time where number one, there's no therapist, so you can't talk to a professional. Right. And number two, where most people you meet are probably not going to be that sympathetic. Right. 
I think it would be really hard to cope at a young age to know that your decision of whether or not you can even have children has been taken away forever in your mind. That would be really, really hard. Oh, yeah. And doing what you can to make the best of it. Like, well, it doesn't matter that I can't leave a child behind because I can do better than that. Mm -hmm. And to take that and make yourself into more, I think is kind of commendable. Oh, a hundred percent. It's just her main yeah. motivation. And yeah. I just kind of wanted to bring that up and, and discuss Definitely. it as her character. Cause we're getting a little bit more into who Starling is and having a little bit more dialogue with her here. Right. Yeah, no, it's, I think that it's very impressive that she is handling this in a way that is furthering her career, I guess. I don't know if that's the best <laughs> way to put it, but she is taking something awful that happened to her and making literally the most of it. She's channeling her energies and passions into something that's productive for herself. Right. And kind of healthy. Yes. If we compare her and Fitz and how they deal with traumas, I think we can see one of them has a little bit more healthy of a coping mechanism. <laughs> it's not fair to compare traumas because all trauma is trauma and that is enough. But it is interesting to see someone else, how they go after feeling better, I guess, for mm. lack of better terms, um, after going through something hard. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up quickly and um, just talk about Starling's motivations a little bit as we continue on and, and get a grasp of her character in the upcoming chapters here. So she is truly tagging along and I, I think a little bit wants to keep Fitz alive or at least pay back a life debt she seems to have that we learn a little about a little bit later as well. Right. To Fitz and uh, also you know, tie him to her so she can get her story Maybe. with these smugglers as well. She tells of what has happened since he left, that all of the guards and the skill wizard, meaning Will, interrogated everyone who is in that caravan, Madge's caravan. Kreese and Tassin both told wild tales of what Fitz had tried to do. Um, Tassin claiming that told and when Tassin told of the night you tried to rape her she said it was only then that she noticed your nails were black like a wolf's claws and your eyes glowed in the darkness Starling says it was such a fine tale it brought tears to my eye it fair brought tears to my eyes she showed the uh the whip mark on her cheek saying this is where you know Fitz scratched me and all of that sort of stuff increase, you know, was adding on to his tales that you were a wild beast and things would go missing in the night. And, sheep specifically. Yeah, would sheep go missing. specifically. And Fitz makes a remark. It sounds like you should follow Tassin about if you're looking for a song. I muttered disgustedly. And oh, but the tale I told was even better. She began. And as the serving boy comes around, she shakes her hat and invites him up to her room to talk more privately after their meal. So they head up there, and uh, there it's a simple, clean room, and Fitz feels like even this kind of room feels like a luxury to me right now. Right. I've spent so long in the wilderness or in common rooms or filthy that this feels very nice. 
And he kind of comments before she picks up again on her story of what she has been doing. He kind of comments on how he thought she had no more coin than he did at the start of that caravan trip. And she says that, well, everyone's paying me very well for the stories. I was a minstrel in the midst of the caravan where you got taken and where the guards ended up dead. So, yes, I'm in demand here. Uh, All of the patrons at the inns are paying me very well. And I am doing the best I can to make money. Right. She she admits that she was not the person who made up the glowing red eyes that Fitz has so fondly asked about. But that some other guy had done it. But she did him one better. She talked about how he had fought like a buck and that your right arm is still bearing the savage mark of King Regal's sword. And above his left eye, he'd a streak of white hair as wide as a man's hand in his hair. And it took three guardsmen just to hold him. He did not even stop fighting, even when the leader of the guards struck him and knocked teeth from his mouth. And she says that he should thank her for making it harder to recognize him. Because she reversed all the directions. The slash was on his left arm. And I believe his white streak is above his right eye. And of course, he does not missing teeth. (laughs) Yes. Also, the white streak isn't very wide. No, true. It's not. Because he was able to pluck a lot of it out and not Mm -hmm. go bald. (laughs) And so... Fitz is asking, like, oh, how did, you know, Crease and Tassin react to that? Because they know me as well. And she's like, they're fine with it. It just makes their stories better, basically. They offered reward for any word of you. And, you know, you have nothing really to fear from me. And we learn how she found out how King Regal isn't there. We were told the king himself felt ill after his long trip and was resting right next door. While we were there, a servant came out, bringing the king's cloak and his boots to be cleaned of mud. Starling gave me a small smile. The boots were immense. And you know the size of the king's feet? I knew she was correct. Regal had small hands and feet, and was more vain of them than many a court lady. I've never been to court, but a few of those better born at our keep had been up to buckkeep for occasions. They spoke of the handsome youngest prince, of his fine manners and dark curling hair and his tidy feet, and how well he danced on them. She shook her head. I knew it was not King Regal in that room. The rest was easy to deduce. They had come to Blue Lake too promptly following the killing of the guards. They came for you. You know what they say about small hands and feet. (laughs) Yeah, small gloves. Small small boots. boots. (laughs) I think it's really funny that this is why Starling knew. That it that Regal wasn't really there. Like, yeah. What are the odds that that little detail would be picked up by anybody? And let alone that detail being picked up, but also knowing that Regal has small hands and feet. I don't know. I just love that about her. She just the more the more I see of her in this chapter, the more I'm like, wow, <laughs> what what a what a babe. <laughs> just, just so great. <laughs> So Fitz kind of grills her on the smugglers and and Starling says, yeah, well, you know, you're going to have to go with me to do that. I've heard gossip that smugglers have a way to cross the river an old way. I don't really know that particular way, but we have to go to them and get passage there. I think at one time there was a bridge away upstream 
But after the river washed out for the fourth consecutive year, no one had the heart to rebuild it. Someone else told me that in summer there is a pulley ferry, and that they used to cross on the ice in winter. In the years when the river freezes, at least. Maybe they are hoping the river will freeze this year. My own thought is, when trade is stopped in one place, it starts in another. There will be a way across. And this is a little frustrating for Fitz. He wants to leave now and doesn't want to have to go across the river. And Starling points out that if he really wants to get there, he could go all the way around Blue Lake to the other side. And Fitz points out that by then it would probably be spring anyway, so he might as well stay. So it has to be the illegal way. And here's another uh, little line that I've highlighted. Starling seemed mildly insulted that I doubt her. (laughs) Yeah. She does mention the actual way that they do go across, the smugglers. Right. At the beginning of this, she says, I've heard gossip that smugglers have a way to cross the river an old way. I know there was once a trade route that went upriver and then across. It fell out of favor when the river became so unpredictable. Well, the river is still very unpredictable, but they do cross up there. Right. On a ferry. So Fitz, of course, is... uh, very concerned because he wants another way, an easier way across the river, but there is no way that would, you know, take him across easily except for the smugglers. Right. Otherwise, he'd have to, you know, go around the lake and be there by spring. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of resigns himself and then asks Starling a little bit more, where do where would I go to find these smugglers? Starling grin, grinned broadly. Tomorrow I will take you to them. But then she is on her way out to sing at a different inn that she has not been to yet and advises Fitz to sleep a bit, take the bed while she is out, and relax. Fitz tries to leave and says, I must be on my way, but she's like, she insists, why not sleep here? Less a chance of being recognized and a lot fewer vermin in this room. If I wanted to sell you to the King's Guard, I could have done it. As alone as you are, Fitz Chivalry... You had better decide to trust someone. When she called me by my name, it was as if something twisted inside me. And yet, why? I asked her softly. Why do you aid me? And don't tell me it's the hope of a song that may never be. That shows how little you understand minstrel, she said. There is no more powerful lure for one than that. But I suppose there is more. No, I know there is. She looked up at me suddenly, her eyes meeting mine squarely. I had a little brother, Jay. He was a guard stationed at the Antler Island Tower. He saw you fight the day the raiders came. She gave a brief snort of laughter. Actually, you stepped over him. You sank your axe into the man who had just struck him down and waded deeper into the battle without even a glance back at him. She looked at me from the corner of her eye. That is why I sing Antler Tower Raid slightly differently from any other minstrel. He told me of it, and I sing you as he saw you, a hero. You saved his life. For a time, anyway. He died later, fighting for Buck, but for a time he lived because of your axe. She stopped speaking and swung her cloak around her shoulders. Stay here. Rest. I won't be back until late. You can have the bed until then if you want. I stood for a time staring at this closed door. Fit chivalry. Hero. Just words. 
but it was as if she had lanced something inside me, drained away some poison, and now I could heal. It was the strangest feeling. Get some sleep, I advised myself. I actually felt as if I could. And that's the life that I was talking about. He saved her brother's life, albeit briefly, because of the horrible war, but saved him, and her brother looked at Fitz as a hero. And so that's, that's mainly why I feel she would look out for Fitz a little bit more, just to try to, you know, equate that in her life and pay it forward a little bit. But then also the song thing is <laughs> <laughs> always there. See, that's why I think she would have went to help him anyway, even if it's because he is Fitz. I think either way, she's helping him because of this. She obviously is still hurt by the loss of her brother, understandably so. And I think she appreciates what he did. Even though it wasn't permanent and it didn't solve the problem forever, in that moment, he was there when he needed him. Yep. And I think it's really sweet. It made me cry. It does every time I read it. And this chapter makes me cry twice because once in the beginning with Burek and then once at the end with Starling. <laughs> but also, it's just nice for Fitz to hear a good story about himself. Yeah. Felt as if something was lanced from him. Some poison drained away. Yeah. And even though he doesn't probably remember this kid or even the instance that Starling is telling him about, I'm sure it feels good to know that there is somebody or there was somebody out there who saw him as that much of a hero right. who he changed the life of even briefly. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit more personal than just hearing her sing Antler Tower Raid. Right. It's it's an actual person behind those feelings instead of a slightly different way to sing a song. Right. So it feels more of a personal connection. Also, he finally gets to sleep restfully. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think we can say if Fitz is happy this time. Yeah. <laughs> He's a hero. <laughs> he is a hero. Yeah, uh, we can give him a happy on this one. That's We're giving him a happy on this one. We have done more for less. <laughs> well, let me know if you guys think he is happy this chapter at all. Uh, email us directly at isfitshappy at gmail.com or... Talk to us online on any of our social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. It is Fitz Happy for all of them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope to hear from you guys and uh, see you next week. Okay, now we get to come to our favorite section. Time where we do listener thoughts. <laughs> I have no name for this section. It's been how long? Um, but always my favorite. And before we do get to listeners, though, we do want to shout out. There is a new Realm of the Elderling podcast in yeah. the mix. As you guys may know, there's us and there's Buckkeep Radio. Um, and the new podcast is Return to the Realm. So. Yeah, it's also going to be, I think, rereaders, but they're doing it 
more of the Buckkeep radio style where they're doing chunks of chapters at a time. I think they just released their first episode. They have a like a trailer and introduction uh, episode and then they have their first four chapters in episode done. I believe. Yes. Actually, the day that we're filming this, it's a day after they have released yeah, <laughs> or yeah. filming. What? I'm sorry, recording. They so yesterday they released their first episode. So you guys can check them out. Mm-hmm. They are out there. And as another shout out, Buckreep Radio did start the final trilogy. The final trilogy. Oh my gosh, it's so yeah, exciting. I know. Also, like ah <laughs> <laughs> The final trilogy is so wild. I feel like there are so many twists and turns. Yeah, I definitely need to reread it before we get back there. So Yeah. We've got a ways to go. We got, a ways. We got we, yeah, we got we got some years to go here. I mean, so. hey, we're like not even halfway through the third book, but we're about to be at the end of the final of the tril- the first trilogy. It's pretty big. Yeah, I think uh I think we finish up this third book before we hit 2 years. Ooh. I think. I don't know. So <laughs> it'll depend. <laughs> it'll depend. Yes. On uh if we hit every every week here, so. Yeah. That's the goal. But yeah, so anyway, welcome to the crew. Uh, Return to the realm. Very cool to have more people in this space. It kind of feels like the fandom is growing, even though I don't think there's like a lot of new people coming to the books. Right. But it does feel like we're getting louder in our love for the series. And one last thing I did see on Reddit. I think the Legendarium's green team or something or their b team uh i think it's some of their fans um have a podcast as well and they're doing ship of magic Ooh. right now so okay good call out i saw that on on, on reddit uh that they were making podcasts so there are there are other podcasts making episodes about realm of the otherlings in general so yeah so if you love podcast medium search them out you and know? you want more in your life because we only post once a week <laughs> <laughs> there are other options yeah, we have. Unfortunately, we have other other duties and jobs, full time yes. jobs. <laughs> uh, so we can't post more than than once, once a week, week at this point. So it's a it's a hope for the future, but probably not feasible. <laughs> yeah, <at all. laughs> not not with the industries we work in at the moment. <laughs> um, but here we are. Yes. And now we're going to talk about what you guys have brought to yes. us. Um, I want to start first with Facebook, the dreaded Facebook. <laughs> I'm just going to continuously make jokes from now on about how much I don't like it. Like, I, I have no issues at all with it. It's fine. But, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was comment about... Episode 74. Yes. I think that was two weeks ago now. Yeah, I believe so. It was it was two weeks ago. Yeah. Wow. Losing track of time here. It, yeah. <laughs> time travels very weirdly. And it looks like uh, we have some comments from Ellen here, um, who is kind of going over our discussion on the nomad people in general. Uh, we, we were talking about how the Mountain Kingdom and the nomads of the plains might have evolved from the same people at all um or like come from one people culturally and ellen doesn't think that they 
are anywhere close to that in the history of time at this point. They have developed their own cultures separately and they're kind of separated at this point. And she's also commenting on our our discussion of the similarities between uh, the agreement, like the tea agreements with the Rainwild traders and right. with the nomads of the plains and how she's just taking that as Hobbes' general vision on longstanding agreements without written contracts. Yeah. Yeah. Which totally makes sense. I mean, there's not a reliable way to write down things. We know that at least in the duchies, people aren't super literate. Right. And that probably in a nomadic culture, you're not also not very literate. And it's polite. And you it's, know? yeah. Also, yeah. <laughs> let's bring back politeness. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is an interesting take that it's not necessarily that they're related. It's just an easy way to bridge cultures and to make agreements be remembered to talk over them verbally, verbally. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen also talks about how they don't find the Tassin situation that weird. And that the pacing is weird for us as readers because Obviously, we literally just read Fitz watching Molly give birth to chapter like two pages ago. But in reality, Fitz has been maybe for weeks walking forward and living in the now and yeah, trying to ignore all that. Yes. And so there is a lot of time that we're not seeing pass. So it's not like it just happened, just happened. But it it is one of those things where like, I'm going to still think it's a little weird. But it does make sense that, like, some people out there don't think it's that weird. And it circles back a little bit on our discussion of loneliness, too. We talked about it then. And, you know, he was feeling alone. He was trying to focus in the now. He was ignoring his connections to the outside to protect them and himself. And it was a connection offered in the moment. Right. And that brings us to some emails where our good friend Tyler has told us that he was very disappointed in Fitz for doing this and for, had forgotten all about the kiss with Tassin, but that in the grand scheme, it's not that bad and that you really can't hold it against Fitz for coping with the, right. the weight of the world in any way. And this is honestly one of his more healthy ways of coping. So touche. And he still stops himself too. Cause he knows it's a bad idea. He so. does. Yeah. Um, Tyler also mentions that they agree with Fitz and Molly needing some time that maybe not 15 years worth of time. But at this <laughs> point, it's probably better that they got time. But Just does, like to be apart. Yes. Yeah, to grow as people and mm-hmm. to get healthier methods of coping. <laughs> but also points out how sad it is that this isn't one of the memories that Fitz gives Nettle, that he doesn't show her that when she was born, he wanted to give up everything. He was willing to finally forsake the Farseer name to go after her, but he physically could not. Yeah. This detail is never truly explained to Nettle. He kind of explains later to her when he's like kind of drugged up, I think that he loves her and he wishes he could have been part of her childhood, but he doesn't super explain why he couldn't. 
Or like and, the depth of that. Yeah. Right. And while Nettle does forgive him and this helps bridge the gap, it would have been nice for her to know right. exactly the depth of what he means by I couldn't go to you. And it's one of those things that reminds us that Nettle is in Fitz's mind for the whole series and that mm-hmm. he truly loves his daughter. And it made me think of something that I did want to point out that um, not all people who make children are parents. Right. But I feel comfortable calling Fitz a father because he does kind of watch over Nettle, whether he is fully aware of that fact or not. And he does love her and he does want to be in her life, but he thinks that it's better for her if he's not. So I don't think just because he is half of her genetics, (laughs) that he is a father. I think because he loves her clearly, he gets to be a father. Right. Also, in regards to Nettle's birth, Ellen gave us some pretty cool insights in an email that the vibe that she got from reading it is that the person who wrote this, so Robin Hobb, came at this birthing section with real knowledge. And mm-hmm. Ellen is a mother, so she knows that it's like kind of accurate. Yeah. And so it's really cool to know that there's that level in the birth that like the birth scene that this is kind of true to life (laughs) yeah and she also notes that it would be truly terrifying to go through it alone like you have with no midwife no health insurance or anything right and it is a great thing that Birik was there he did snap into a calm and collected state eventually and had experience with birthing in some regard right to make it as smooth as possible yeah so definitely cool to hear that that is like real insight. (laughs) I don't know, cool or scary, but, (laughs) (laughs) but that was fun to find out. Um, Ellen also wrote us to talk about chapter 12. Yep. Last chapter here. Um, our last episode that we did and has a few questions for us overall about, you know, pretty much the whole, the whole chapter in different regards. So the first Part of this is Starling singing and talking about the witted bastard to the caravan group. Right. Why did why do you think she brought that up? I don't know. I I feel like Starling wanted to get a read on the other group members to see if anyone else thought that maybe Fitz was who he is. Maybe gain sympathy or something. I don't know if it was even for sympathy. I just think she wanted more verification because Fitz wasn't giving that to her. And so to like ease some doubts, maybe see if there were any other thoughts or maybe to make herself feel better that nobody else caught it. And she did. I don't know. Yeah. That also feels very startling. (laughs) Also, she's asking about the Tinker family that got beaten up by the guards. Do you think that was... Because the guards were trying to elicit a response from a potential fit chivalry or no. just because they're mean. Yeah, I agree with you. I think they're just. They're mean. They as, are as bullies. Ellen, as Ellen puts it, violent, disrespectful people. <laughs> that's true. I think they're yes. just bullies. I think that's well documented throughout everything. And with Bolt at their helm, we know that they're going to be bullies. Right. You know, because that, that Bolt revels in the pain that he can inflict on others and the power he has over them. 
But she also asks, was it cowardice that Fitz didn't stand up and protect them or maturity? And I don't think it's either. I think he was scared. I think he's like, I can't do anything. I don't think it's maturity to say, like, I'm scared. I can't do anything. I don't want to reveal myself. I don't think it's I don't think it's cowardice either to say that I have a bigger mission that I need to get to Verity and I can't risk myself for this that will pass over them, you know? Hmm. Okay. I don't know. I thought it was a little bit mature that he would let them pass by, even if he wanted to help to serve his end goal, which is to get to Verity, but not, I mean, morally bad, Because obviously the perfect thing to do morally would be to step in because it's the right thing to do. I think. Is it morally bad, though? Because if he steps in, gets caught and dies, then he loses. This is the trolley conundrum (laughs) of you have four tinkerers getting bullied by a cart. But if you change the train, the whole of the six duchies dies. But maybe like six months down the line, you know? I don't know. It's it's a little bit of both, I'm sure. But I don't know. I I feel like it's I want to say maturity, even though I feel bad that he didn't help people in need. <laughs> and in line with, you know, trying to with Starling trying to maybe gain sympathy or understand who is on Fitz's side within the caravan, do you think he would have had any allies? You think anybody in that caravan, when Bolt exposed him and said that he is Fitz Chivalry, was kind of like, yes, yeah, staying quiet for their own safety, but like maybe, oh, they shouldn't treat him like this. Because I don't. Mm. Starling, yes, but she was convinced as they were leading him away that he was just Tom. I think that no one there cared. They, they wanted him gone because they were mostly from the inner duchies. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to say that they all were like, whatever, who cares if he gets beat up? We're speculating here. Right. (laughs) I know. But I would like to think that at least somebody in the group felt bad. Like maybe the guy who gave him a job to begin with, not Crease, the like older man, Damon. Yeah. I think maybe Damon would feel some type of sympathy because Fitz is a great worker. Yeah. So and does his work quietly and doesn't complain and does it well like at least for that aspect i think he'd be sad to lose fits but i don't think it'd be enough of like a well i'm not gonna step in you know do you think people believed fits when he was saying i'm just tom but just didn't speak up or do you Mm -hmm. think they believed bolt when he when he said that no this is fit chivalry he's just lying because i can believe that i can believe that oh yeah they got the wrong man but i'm not going to interfere I think that they didn't care enough to know to either (laughs) way, I guess. I think I don't think all of them wanted to see a person in pain. But I think when you live in conditions where people are regularly getting beat up on the street for money or just for the fun of the guards, it probably breeds a little bit of an inhospitable lifestyle where you stop caring out of necessity so i could see not necessarily them rooting for somebody to get hurt but like well at least it gets these people out of our camp mm-hmm. 
And so whether or not he's Fitz, whatever. And then in this chapter, when they hear about the dead bodies, they're like, we always knew it was Fitz from the beginning. And I don't know. I don't think they knew one way or the other. And Ellen is also asking us about, or at least commenting on that youngest soldier, the youngest guard, the last one to die and how bad she feels for both the soldier and for Fitz, because that's another uh, quote unquote small trauma (laughs) that he has to carry around for and says he, he still hears the crying and, and the sobbing once in a while and, and asks it's another burden to bear to harden his soul. Maybe another pain to put into girl on a dragon. Which I, I think is possible. Right. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say, yeah, that's true, because we only explicitly get a few of the feelings that he puts in, mainly the hurt surrounding Molly of losing Molly and uh his mother. Right. But it's definitely possible he puts in that too and just loses some of his humanity of feeling bad for things that he's caused. It's possible. We do know that he does put other, yeah, like you said, like he puts other feelings in there and we don't know what. I mean, part of me, if he's putting bad feelings in there anyway, hopes he did because this is really sad. This is somebody really close in age to him and this could be him. This is the other side of the coin of, what could have happened to him in other circumstances. And I think that would almost make it harder. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's all rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's lastly, a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. And lastly, night eyes. Ellen is asking about night eyes and why did he make contact with Fitz now during the whole caravan event rather than Tradeford? Okay. Is now the time that he decides to leave the other wolves and come back to Fitz, which the answer to that is no. He's still with the wolves in this chapter, so we know he hasn't left yet. Um, here's my not so nice theory about Night Eyes and the Wolf Pack, which is not very nice to Robin Hobb as a writer, but I think it was a scapegoat to not have to deal with trying to hide Night Eyes through this scene or through this these couple of chapters. That's my theory, but that is the whole reason why he's there. So he has to keep touching base because we don't want to forget about him because he's always going to come back. But I think the whole reason he's not here is just because it'd be way harder to hide him in a desert <laughs> than in the woods. And possible. So, so part of me thinks he touches in from time to time. Not because of a spe- specific reason, just because, hey, reader, remember that this this character is here. They're coming back. Don't you worry. Which is not a nice thing. I don't think that makes her less of a writer or that her writing is bad because of it. But I, I think it's more that Night Eyes knew that Fitz didn't really care about the consequences of attacking Tradeford. Right. He took his chance with the wolf pack one because it was the first wild wolves he had ever met in his adult life. And he was lonely for his own kind and interested to see what was going on with that. And two, because Fitz was pretty fatalistic with his actions and what he was planning on doing. So during Tradeford Hall, I I feel like not much had changed in Fitz's mind during that whole debacle to like really draw attention 
But during this, Fitz has a new lease on life. He wants to survive. He wants to go back. And this struggle for life, this struggle for I need to survive and go through this is kind of a a new feeling that Night Eyes can ascertain through their bond. Sure. And that's why he reached out during this scene. In my mind, more so, just because he could feel a difference and be like, hey, is everything okay? Like, I can come back if you need kind of thing. Right. I guess if I'm not being so harsh on the, like, thinking about it the way I do, potentially this is just the first time that Night Eyes has felt safe enough in his pack to use this ability, if that makes sense. Yeah, it could be true. I think it's a little bit of mirroring of Fitz. Fitz can't use the wit around his own kind because it's weird and makes him stand out. And I am sure something similar happens when animals use the wit, (laughs) that it makes them stand out and seem odd. And whenever you're trying to gain the favor of a pack, you don't really want to be that different, probably. And so maybe this just shows that fit, that Night Eyes has kind of gained more trust with the group and that he's feeling more able to sneak off or to just be himself. Definitely possible, yeah. And that with this struggle, there's more more depth of emotion rather than just, if I die, I die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you, Ellen, for sending yes. that in. Thank you. And I'm going to bring it to Instagram because we got a really interesting message from. Oof. (laughs) Cello Cohen. Or Cello Cohen. If you're going instruments. Yeah, I suppose it could be cello. Um, Sorry. (laughs) They sent us a really interesting message about chapter 11 and the nomads. About how they picture this description more as Native Americans to the Americas and that these nomad peoples don't necessarily have any relation to the mountain people. In their eyes, they see mountain people as the like type of white person that's more Swedish or like the very pale all around coloring, whereas... These nomads are more of the darker complexion blondes. And so um, they all these nomads would have their separate peoples and nations and cultures. Right. right. Um, rather than just being homogenous or coming from the same descent. Yes. Which I thought was a really good point and example because why wouldn't there be people that right. were native? This, I mean, kind of calls back to the people with the, the wild men. Or yeah, whatever. the wild men that those could also potentially be a type yeah like like our native americans here in the u.s so i thought that was a really cool thing to equate them to Mm -hmm. um a good example i guess we we just don't we don't know even more than we didn't know before (laughs) about these peoples or their their cultures yes nations Um, but they also did point out that this is the first mention of tattoos outside of the mapping or map faces as they call slaves. slaves yeah so pretty first, neat. Yeah, first tattooing that's... Intentional? I Well, the slave tattoos are intentional, but for a different... Reason, I guess, yeah. like, personal. Yes. 
Although we don't know that for sure either, but right. <laughs> it's the first non-slavery related tattooing yes. <laughs> mention that we get. Which is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to bring this around to is an email from Tyler again, but this is a separate thought. It's a little bit more of a whole theming idea about Realm of the Elderlings and also comparing it to the Wheel of Time. I've mentioned that I'm a big Wheel of Time fan, and I know not everyone who listens to this might be or has not read it. But in general, both of them talk about cycles and things in history repeating themselves often. While Wheel of Time talks about that on a macro scale, like Tyler says, involving the same, you know, events occurring, basically history history repeating itself. Robin Hobb more focuses, as we see in Fitz's life, on the personal and character by character by person by person scale. How the cycle of, you know, um, Burek raising Fitz and then Beric raising Fitz's daughter and like all these different things kind of like repeat themselves and the same emotions and flows of the, you know, the characters lives kind of lend into this circle and this cycle. Right. And how it's, it's very, to me, reminiscent of what the fool is talking about all the time, that wheel that is going through in that rut and he's just trying to look for that pebble to lodge it out of that perpetual cycle, that path it's going on to lead it to a better direction because the choices that Fitz makes does create more of the same cycles, but those are broken with his future actions as well. Right. With dutiful and him being accepted back into the Royal family and and all these different things. So I thought that was a very interesting, you know, overall theming email that we got. And it was um, interesting to read about because since we're doing a chapter by chapter read, we don't often look at the larger scale of the realm of the Utterlings or get a chance to talk about that. Right. So it's it was interesting. So thank you very much, Tyler, for bringing that up to allow me to, you know, speak a little bit about how interesting all the relationships are in Realm of the Other Things and how they seem to repeat themselves through similar actions. Yeah. Always very fun to hear from everybody, to get new ideas or to read things different ways or to hear that you guys vehemently disagree or are excited to agree with us. Either way, we always love hearing from you guys and we can't see what you guys bring to the table next week. <laughs>